<laughs> All right, guys. If you want to come forward, parents, come this way. Checking your kids in. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, let me begin with a word about the books. Uh, some of those books cost less than $10. Some of those books cost more than $10. We're not trying to make money on selling books. So um, if you don't have money and you just really want the book, you can have it. It's a gift from us. But we are recommending like a donation of $10. It's about right in the middle. Helps us just kind of break even. Uh, if you just want to take a picture of a book title and buy it on Amazon, that's, you can do that too. But those are some um, books that um, we've used, read, liked, and whatever. Also, um, for you note takers... Uh, we, do, we have a handout today to kind of direct the talk. And um, so getting tables for sure with people so y'all can, like, there's going to be opportunities to discuss. And so what I want to do is, like, one of you guys at your table loves, like, being, like, the discussion note taker. So one of you guys, like, all of you take notes for sure. But one of you, I know, is, like, when we have little table discussions, we'll want to write down. And so have a writer in there. I know there's one, there's one in every table. It's a personality profile. So Jeff, I'm going to leave these extra. So if people are coming in later, um, you can just kind of hand those out and whatever. All right. Um, with that, let me just pray for us. Let me just pray for us. And then um, Gwen, you'll want to get with these guys so that you have a table. So if you lot that I would see how people are going to be coming in, Gwen, guest of honor, you're the best. Um, Violeta, tú también puedes entrar ahí, si quieres. Hey, by the way, Gwen, este, van a tener una película, por si acaso. Okay, got it. All right, I know. Parenting's complex, I get it. No judgment. All right, here we go. Got it. All right, let me pray for us, and we're going to start right away. Father, um, we thank you for um, just time to set apart to think about children, uh, to think about our own upbringing, um, to think about the heart. And we would just ask that you would just inhabit these discussions and um, help us to see Jesus more clearly. Help us to lead others, namely our children and our friends' children, to see Jesus more clearly. For we pray in his name. Amen. All right. Hey, so what I want to do is I want to begin with disclaimers. Uh, so I have been parenting for 14 years. My oldest is 14. I've been pastoring for 11. And as a pastor, as a pastor, I have the distinct privilege of having the children's director of my own church come to me to discuss behavior issues. All right? So I'm not winning necessarily. All right? Like when your children's director in your own church comes to talk to you about, about parenting, then you kind of like have to check under the hood. I am not like... Perfect at all. Uh, have you guys, do y'all know who Jim Gaffigan is? He has like this super funny skit where like he has like a thousand kids like we do, right? Like the Nelsons do, right? It's awesome. And, uh, and he's like, I think on his like sixth child or whatever. And he's like, he's like, you know, what, you know what parenting is like? Parenting is like you're in the sea, like just drowning. And everyone's like, yeah, that's what parenting is like. And then someone comes to you and hands you a baby. <laughs> it's like you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. That's what parenting is like. And I was like, that like resonates with me. Um, but I'm not coming to you guys as, um, as a perfect parent, mostly as a sojourner 
in this land of parenting. So I really want y'all to hear that. In James 3.1, I read it this week, you guys. James 3.1, you might not have it memorized, but this is what it says. It says, not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So try not to judge too hard as I share with you about parenting, all right? Um, So that's the first disclaimer. The second one is that um, today's, uh, this class isn't just like this um, stand and deliver. We created these tables uh, because there's going to be moments where we just pause and kind of have table discussions and mutual collaborative discussions. Um, I acknowledge that some of you have experiences and insights into parenting that I don't have. And so I have as much to learn from you as you do me. So for sure. Uh, Disclaimer number three, if you were hoping that this parenting class would be the magic bullet that solves all of your parenting heartache or anxiety, this is going to be really disappointing for you. Like, it's going to be really, my main goal for today is to outline the conversation and then just give us time to reflect on it. But honestly, there's just too much. Um, Just like the section on technology, like I'm going to talk about, is going to get like a minute I could give five seminars on just what I'm learning about technology. So um, today is really an, uh, an overview, and we're going to have additional conversations. And then um, uh, disclaimer number four, uh, if you are a single or for whatever reason um, you don't have a husband or if you um, can't have children, uh, this workshop is for everyone. Um, Because here's the thing, is that parenting requires people outside of the nuclear family to be agents of grace in the lives of our children. Like, it is truly a collaborative project. And I'm going to talk more about that. But additionally, every human being, single or married, is made in God's image. And being that they're made in God's image, they have fatherly affections and motherly affections. Everyone does, whether you have children or not. And you need a place to properly express those motherly and fatherly expression, uh, affections. Jesus Christ himself never had, his own, never had children and yet expressed fatherly affection. And it is important for us to inculcate that even in um, everyone's hearts to, be, to live up to all that God has made us to do. And let me also say that when you contemplate, uh, like, um, parenting, the first thing you're going to start thinking about is your own experience growing up and being parented. And let me just say, um, like, you have to go there critically. And and that's going to—this is like a discipleship. Thinking about parenting makes you think about your own upbringing, and that is a place of emotional maturity for us. Like, we have to go there and be critical. So that's how come everyone can benefit from us talking about parenting, because it makes you reflect upwards, not just downwards. Does that make sense? Um, So—and then last last disclaimer is that there's not a one-size-fits-all, Right? Um, I'm often going to speak with examples of my own children, but um, that doesn't mean that what we do in my family is absolutely prescriptive and the right thing for every family. Um, obviously, a lot of what I'm going to say requires a father. And if you're a single mom, right, do the math. This doesn't work. And so we need supplemental. So we need collective wisdom for contextualization. So that's why I don't want to be 
like super legalistic. Um, and, and, and listen, you guys, um, people are super touchy about this conversation of parenting. Oh my gosh, I remember being like at seminary in the playground and, and like people were like, yeah, if you get an epidural when you give birth, like you're going to give your child autism. Like, like super like legalistic about everything. Like people have really strong opinions about parenting. And if you do something different than what they do, like they just assume that you're judging them. Like what, you think you're better than me? Oh, you want to go anti-vax with me? You know, like it's super touchy. Like you've got to like let that stuff go. You've just got to assume that you're doing it wrong and then you're like open to like whatever, you know? So just, everyone just chill out, all right? And I'm serious about this. Like, this is like super touchy parenting issues. I mean, we are so touchy about it. Part of it is, is that children are a little, are mini idols, are mini idols where we find a lot of self-worth and self-identity. And so when people start poking around, you're like, don't mess with my little functional God, you know? So we are gonna poke around a little bit, just go with it and just say, Lord, I'm expecting you to contradict me. And to contradict what my parents did, you know? And it's okay. It's fine. Just because you offer a critique to your parents doesn't mean you disrespect them or don't like them. All right? You can both disagree with how they did things and still love them. That's a, th- that's a possibility, you guys. All right? All right. All right, with that. Uh, so what I'm going to do, let's begin with that. Those disclaimers, lots of them. Yeah. It is being recorded. It is being recorded. It's being recorded. Yeah, it is. So... So the, here's the outline for today with all those disclaimers, <laughs> all those disclaimers, is we're going to talk about the principles of parenting, then we're going to go to the purpose, the practice, and the pitfalls. I know, I, I don't know why I do it with all the Ps, but there we go. So principles, purpose, practice, and then pitfalls of parenting. Um, you know, the Proverbs, and Proverbs 22, 6, I try to put a lot of these verses that I'm using on your sheet, but it says, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Uh, the word train up, it could be something like indoctrinate. Like shape, indoctrinate your child in the way he should go. This isn't like a promise, right? This is just a principle of generally speaking. Um, but so what I want to do is I want to start then with principles. What, what is this kind of indoctrination? Now, pedagogically, here's what I'm doing. I'm, uh, like teachers will say, hey, um, for effective learning, you want to start with big picture, like the whole, and then you want to go to the parts, and then you want to finish with the whole again, whole part, whole, anyone, know? anyone, teachers? Okay, y'all know what that is? So that's what I'm doing today. I'm going to start with principles, and then you'll see these principles come through in the teaching, and then we'll go back to the principles at the end. That's what I'm doing, uh, big picture. And let me just say, some of these principles I'm not going to be able to get to today, but I want to get them out there because we are going to be coming back to this in the future. So uh, principle number one. Alien, an alien child require, requires alien parents. And what that means is, I'm, I'm borrowing from uh, Jen Wilkinson. She's a, I'm going to, I use a lot of uh, different speakers and authors in some of this stuff. But she talks about, um, in First Peter, and we're going to look at this verse more carefully here in a second. In First Peter chapter 2, you see that uh, Paul says, hey, urge you as sojourners and exiles, or the NIV says as aliens and strangers, to live a certain way so that the world may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like, we're called to be like aliens in this world. So we're training up our children to be aliens, strangers, different. Your children will not be aliens and strangers. They will, unless you are. Unless you are. 
So I'm gonna, we're going to look at more what that is. But the thing is, is you can't take your child farther than you have walked yourself. Um, lukewarm faith in this generation is outright rebellion in the next. Right? Y'all see that? So our, our kids historically embody an exaggerated form of our commitment level. They take it farther. They take what, whatever we do to an extreme. So alien, child requires alien parents. Principle number two, children don't need perfect parents. They need broken parents. Rep- qualified. Good. Got that one. That was easy. But like your authority and your place of privilege in the heart of your children is not based on your perfect perfection as a parent. Really what they need is to see a parent who runs to Jesus. A parent who can look their child in the eye and say, I've blown it. I need Jesus. And that is so instructive. Not because you were so perfect, consistent parent, right? That's not, that's not what gets them there. It's your, it's your broken. So parenting is not about per- perfection. It's not. Good parenting is not. All right, three. What is not transformed in your heart will be transferred. You will reproduce who you are. So you got to go there. Parenting is a much about our own self-exploration as it is about tools and skills in our children's lives. What is not transformed will be transformed. And we'll look at some of that. Four, hearts cannot be told. Rather, they must be oriented and directed through practices that turn our hearts toward God. So parenting is not just about imparting Christian truths Right? Now, it's not just data transfer, but about forming loves, forming loves towards God and his word. Because love for God is primarily caught, not taught. Love for God is primarily caught, not taught. Y'all follow what I'm saying there? All right. Um, Principle five. Good discipline and instruction happens over time in the context of a generally cheerful and warm relationship. Good discipline and instruction happens over time in the context of a generally cheerful and warm relationship. That's how come we always say, I mean, you've probably heard me say like, daddies, you want to love your children? Love your children's mama, right? Because that cheerfulness in your marriage even if you just screw everything up with, like, you let your kids eat GMOs and whatever. I don't know. I'm just talking trash now. But, like, whatever mistakes you make will be absorbed in, like, this generally affectionate home that you have. Does that make sense? That's really, like, really good news. So um, uh, good discipline happens um, in a context of generally cheerful and warm relationship. And that, of course, with your children. Uh, a, a good relationship can absorb your issues, your mistakes, and you're going to make a lot of them. But a good relationship can absorb it. It can weather that storm of all your mistakes that you've made, and you're going to make a lot of them. You're not going to do this right, but a good relation will absorb that. It won't, it won't be so acute, the problem. You're not going to scar your children because you just blew it, you know, all right? And then seven, or uh, six, principle six, parenting is not about behavior management, but gospel saturation of the heart. 
that's going to get some attention here at the end. Uh, parenting is not about behavior management. We're not just trying to get them to obey. Just blindly be compliant. That's not the goal. It's not the goal. Anyone can do that by being mean enough. <laughs> you know, you just be mean enough and you'll get compliance. That's not what we're going for. All right. And then seven, a parent's job is not to protect their children from suffering or heartbreak, but rather to show them how to suffer well and persevere. If you protect your children from suffering, when they leave your home, you are going to crush them because the real world is marked with suffering. You might have a grandchild who dies, and your child, their parent, needs to know how to grieve while they're holding a lifeless baby in their arms. You see what I'm saying? That's the real world. There are no promises. So don't, it's not that we're protecting them from consequences or suffering or heartache. It's how to be present in that. That's part of what we're doing as parents, okay? So those are, those are some principles, and they're going to kind of flow and come up as we talk. Whole part, whole pedagogical approach. All right, I don't know if this is working, but I'm trying. All right. All right, so let's start with a question for your table. Uh, I want you to think about, um, I want you to think about your non-Christian neighbors with children or friends that you know. What are their fears and worries and concerns? Try to represent them. What would be their fears and worries and concerns? Just talk about it. I'm going to give you like a minute at your table. Just talk about it among each other. What are their fears? Someone kind of write down notes too. Like just write down like one or two things so that you'll, you'll remember it. Um, okay, while you're still at your tables, now keep, keep, what are, what are, now move to, keep talking in your tables, what is your greatest hope for your child? Or what is your greatest hope? So we talked about worries for your, that your neighbors have. What's your greatest hope for your child or your goals for your children? All right, keep talking. What are your goals for your children? Or if you're single, what do you suppose your parents' goals were for you? Yeah, if you're single... Right? What were your parents' goals for you? All right?
All right. Well, just um, what, what are, um, is there maybe one table, when, the question of what were your, your neighbors, what, what are some of their primary fears and worries and concerns? Any, any one thing that kind of stuck out? Anyone want to share what y'all, mm-hmm. Fear of failure, uh-huh. Yep, you don't want your children to fail. And what do you suppose that they're afraid of them failing at? At academics. Great, yeah. Great, that's, that's probably a pretty common one, right? Mm-hmm. Good. Any other, any other thoughts? Just keeping up, like maintaining status, like, hey, you don't want to stick out, like maintaining. Yeah, like, can our kids... Assimilate well, you know, <laughs> I don't know, keeping up with the Joneses. Good. Okay, what are some of your goals? Um, what, what are some of your greatest hopes for your children? What, were, what are some of your goals for your children? Any one or two tables? Right. <laughs> yeah, good. I want them to marry well. Ah, that's good. That's good. Good. Ah, I like that. Marrying well, like how do you, yeah, what, what's some of your goal? Yeah, like generally impressive. Good, good, all right. Um, let, me, let me tell you, um, let me tell you some of my goals, uh, some, some of my goals, um, uh, you guys are like big picture. For me, it was like I want my kids to go to bed early without complaining so that Amanda and I can watch Netflix. Um, I don't want my children to make, make a mess. Uh, I don't want my kids to embarrass me in public. Uh, I want them to make good grades so that they can get scholarships because I don't want to pay for college. That's, that's kind of like my goals. And I'm um, like, what? Like, I look in the Bible and I'm like, oh, like... Are those not, like, good goals? They're not, that's not, are those the wrong goals? Here's the thing. When you don't realize that you have unspoken goals, you're going to find yourself in constant disappointment and frustration. You're not going to know why you're frustrated. It's because we have on paper what our goals are for our children, and then we have these kind of unspoken goals that they're not living up to. And you're like, why am I frustrated all the time? It's because they're threatening your unspoken goals for them. Uh, so we have these subconscious goals. Um, so you got, you got to kind of root them out. Otherwise, you're not going to understand your own frustration. So the question then becomes, what, biblically speaking, is the purpose of parenting? So turn your attention there to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Right there, it's on your page. It says this, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your home and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, in that verse, can you hear the singular focus of God-centeredness in parenting? 
Parenting is glorified in-house discipleship. That's what it is. You want to know what discipleship is, what we're trying to do with one another? Like, parenting is just like a microcosm of that. It's just a microcosm of that. Um, So here are two ways of thinking about the purpose of parenting. Two ways. The first is to help our children to grow, to know, and to serve, and to love Christ and his gospel with everything they have. So uh, parenting would be like holding up this banner that I want to be a part of that little buddy loving Christ. I want to be a part of that little buddy loving Christ. Now listen, we um, often send conflicting messages to our children, right? That Jesus is important, but what gets me really excited is not their relationship to Christ and his church or their eternal destiny, but their success. That's the message we can send. That's what really gets me excited. What we say about, um, about the relationship to Christ and the church is the most important thing. Um, or what we say as being the most important thing is one message that we have on paper, but then we organize our lives and our money and our time and our values in a way that communicates that that's not true. But that's just not true, right? And our children can read between the lines. Remember principle number four? What is principle number four? More is caught than taught. Right? Y'all see that? If your goal is to have children who are singularly in love with Jesus, and as a result, they, they are successful in out of obedience to the Lord, not as a goal in of itself, they will not blend in. Your children will not blend in. Because um, how much of our decision-making is towards fitting in iPhones, the clothes, the movies we let them watch, the activities they participate? Um, how, uh, what I have found is that how susceptible our children are to peer pressure is less of a question is less a concern. It's really how much parental peer pressure we feel. Do y'all follow what I'm trying to say? Like we have parental peer pressure to let our kids do certain things or look a certain way or to assimilate. So we feel pressure. Our kids, I mean, they have peer pressure, but whatever. They get over it much faster. But parents, we are susceptible to peer pressure. We don't want to be alien parents, honestly. Uh, here's another way of thinking about the purpose of peer parenting. Uh, of parenting. Uh, the second one would be grounding and sending. Grounding and sending. So how do you, how do you ground them? How do you ground your children? Uh, well, the question is, how is anyone grounded in anything? You know, It is a habit motivated by certain values and priorities that are inculcated over time. So habits motivated by certain values that are inculcated in the, in, the, in the child, in the person, over time. So there's a pattern or a rhythm in the home that equips our children, not just financially, not just intellectually, not just emotionally, but like really kind of theologically. And I'm not talking about theology per se, but like in their faith so that they can follow Jesus over the long haul. 
right? So that they can follow. When you're not around, they're following Jesus over the long haul. And be equipped then in their vocational lives in light of that. As opposed to making the vocational equipping the goal, right? So a habit, developing a rhythm or a habit in your home uh, requires saying yes to certain things and saying no to others. Because we are like super committed, aren't we? Like we're super committed. So uh, what do we say yes to and what do we say no to? How do we think about that? And that leads us to our next uh, our next section. So, so far we looked at the principles of parenting and the purpose. And the purpose, where well, I gave you those two ways of thinking about the purpose. We're going to get now to the practice of parenting. Um, what, um, in your groups, um, what past elements have shaped your own parenting? What, what, what past elements have shaped your own parenting? What's worth, what's worth our time? What do we say yes to or no to? Um, or, or what were the priorities of the home that you grew up in? Maybe we could put it like that. Take a minute or two in, at your table to talk about what were, the, what were the priorities of the home that you grew up in. So go ahead and talk in your table for just a minute or two. One more minute, one more minute. All right. All right. What, what were um, what were some of the elements that have shaped your parenting, or what were some of the priorities in the home that you grew up in? Anyone want to share from their table? Just keep like the priority. Just keep you out of trouble, out of jail. No new tattoos. <laughs> Good. All right. All right. Good. Any any other like priorities or things that have shaped your parenting? 
priorities? Anything? Over this table? You guys? That's, like, literally, this is what my parents did. I'm going to do the exact opposite. Good. All right. All right. There's a lot to all that. That, that is not an uncommon theme, honestly. Were you going to say something back there? Okay. Say again? Achievement. Achievement oriented priorities. Fascinating. Good. Good. Awesome. Um, well, we're, we're going to go now then in light of the, 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 the priorities and the practices of parenting. Uh, look at First Peter chapter 2. We're gonna, this is the one that I, I alluded to earlier. This is not about parenting. This is about what we are called to be. What the apostle Peter has a vision for us. I urge you as sojourners and exiles or better aliens and strangers to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That means they're, they're vying for, for priority. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So if we desire for our children to love the Lord above all other things, then, then the formation of our kids must include an identity of being that alien, of that stranger in this world. I mean, they have to feel like out of place because um, our hope is not fundamentally in this world, right? Our hope is not in this world. It's the creator of this world, right? Uh, if we don't want our kids to get too cozy with this life, right? Y'all see that? Um, if something in this life represents your child's or yours deepest aspiration, if something in this world represents your deepest aspiration because of your practices and, and, and priorities in parenting, uh, your children will get assimilated and they will sell out to their faith when the seductions of comfort or money or sex or acceptance come knocking on their door. But if... The habits of the home, habits that have been forged through rhythms and, um, and, and priorities over like the course of 20 years or 18 years, um, have shaped their palates of what they think is actually good, like their vision of what is the good life that I want anyway, if that has been shaped. If those habits have forged this unbreakable identity of being a stranger and an alien in this world, they're more likely than to live that out when they leave your home. Y'all see that? That's not hard to believe, right? That's, I mean, it's, it, it's intuitive. So what I want to do right now is I want to share some of the uh, priorities and practices and values that we've tried to instill in our home in order to raise kids who stick out. Because I'm trying to raise alien kids too with you. So let me begin a little bit with my own story. Uh, I grew up in a lower middle class home, maybe upper lower class home. Uh, my parents were Mexican. And we lived in an area that was predominantly white. So my, cho- my parents moved out of the Mexican sort of population centers. And I lived in a predominantly white area. So I really felt the pressure of wanting to fit in, right? Um, it's interesting because I didn't even want to speak Spanish, right? Because I'm, I'm trying to assimilate. I, wanted, I had this desire to fit in. 
And I really began to feel this acutely when I was in seventh grade, especially in light of the fact that my teeth were disproportionately large for my face, right? Uh, So what was my solution for fitting in? I I begged my mom for Z Cavaricis and Rayon shirts. Okay, does anyone know what Z Cavaricis are? Thank you. Good. Anyone else? Oh my gosh. I'm a little bit older. (laughs) Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Rayon shirts. I swear these were so cool in the 80s. Uh, Okay, I'm so glad that a few of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. It makes me extremely happy. Um, So Z Cavaricis, Rayon shirts. uh, But the main thing I did is I got really good grades. Really good grades. And I really did well in athletics. And I desperately fought for the approval of my teachers until I became an outright approval addict. Approval addict. Now, why do I mention this? Because my childhood and approval addiction is sometimes flowing through my parenting. You know, our decisions for our children often have less to do what is right for our children and more so self-medicating through our parenting or recreating a happy memory through our children. Okay, does, that, does that resonate? Could y'all see how that'd be the case? Um, it's not what's best for your children is you're self-medicating. And here's the problem, principle number three. Whatever is not transformed will be transferred into your children. You will reproduce yourself. And this is ironic because of the point that Joe made, which is not uncommon for, I know my story too, is do the opposite of your parents, right? Because what my parents did, well, the problem is, is our anger or disappointment with it is not enough for there to actually create change. It's not. It has to be transformed. Being upset about it is not sufficient. You'll still self-medicate and still pass on. Does that make sense? So... Um, we have to think about gospel priority and practices that create alien children. Not reproducing ourselves. Not reproducing ourselves. Unless you're an alien child, uh, adult. <laughs> and if you are, that's good. We want to do that. So here's some of the priorities and practices in our home. Again, um, let me just say, uh, you can't just take what's, what's happening in my family and just reproduce it in yours. It's not like cookie cutter. Each family is unique. Um, so some you can take, others you got to throw out. I get that, okay? Um, and, and let me just tell you the context of my particular family with Amanda and I. Uh, we have four children that are born in two and a half years of each other. Uh, so our house is super intense. When our children were babies, all four of them were in diapers. All four of them were in diapers. With four in diapers and... Um, we went through 25 diapers a day. 25 diapers a day. Not a week, a day. And um, so like those parents who come around and they're like, well, we do cloth diapers. I'm like, whatever. We're like rolling our eyes at the cloth diaper people. We're like, we were like this, like knee deep in like poop, you know? Like it was so intense. So Part of the intensity of our family context has driven some of our practices and priorities. And you'll kind of see some of that. All right. All right. So um, priority one is um, God's law. I want to talk about this for a second. 
Um, Amanda and I know that we can't make our children Christians. Does that make sense? We, we can't believe for them. Um, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But our job is to create an environment where Jesus is beautiful and compelling. So we, wanna, we want our kids to grow up in a home where Jesus is the Lord, not just a custom, where he's the Lord. Uh, so what this means is that we hold our family, we hold to a standard. We're not prudes. I don't want you to hear that. We're, we're not prudes, but we hold to a standard. So celebrating, now listen to me, you guys, celebrating God's law is not tantamount to legalism. I don't want you to hear that. It, it can be, it can be, if there is not a high relational investment in your kids. The law, without a meaningful and loving relationship, can become toxic in the home. Some of you grew up in that home. That's super legalistic. And so you're like, maybe like reacting to that. You have an allergy to that. So I recognize that there is risk. Trying to, um, so enforcing God's law is not the same as parenting. So I don't want you to hear that. Like trying to break your children in, like we break in a horse or break in a, a dog. It, that's not parenting, all right? In fact, that's really harmful, really harmful long-term. Children who grow up in fundamentalist environments don't have, there's no correlation to them walking with the Lord long-term. There's none. Zero. All right. Um, uh, but, but making Jesus the Lord of the home through his moral law with consequences, it is a gift. It is a gift. Um, I remember there was this kid uh, that I went to high school with. And his parents were the cool parents. And by cool parents, it meant that his parents, like, let him do whatever. They even bought alcohol for him. And we just were like, man, this guy is... Everyone wanted to be at his house. Parents would check out, leave, give him some money, massive parties, alcohol, whatever. We, we were like, we looked at him and thought, man, you have the cool parents. We have the parents with all the law, you know? You have the cool parents. Fast forward to a, a high school reunion. I see the same guy, the guy with the cool parents. And I say, man, when I look at him, you're like, man, this guy's lived a hard life. You just look at him, you're like, he's not, he's not well. You know, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. When you go to your reunion and like some of your buddies, you're like, man, life's been hard to you. Like, life's been hard to this guy. And so I'm talking to him, just trying to catch up. I hadn't seen him. I'm, I'm the guy who left when I was 18 years old and never moved back, right? So I'm seeing this guy. I'm like, how are your parents? You know, how are they doing? And like a look of disgust came over him. He's like, I don't care. I don't care to know anything about them. He is completely alienated from his parents. Do you know what happened? Without even telling you the story, here's what happened. Is he woke up one day and he realized that in high school, they did not care at all what he did. And he woke up and realized they don't care at all. Do you see what I'm saying? They don't care at all. And they don't care at all. And he hates them. The law is a gift because he was all alone in the world. So rules... In the context of loving relationship are a gift. It means that you care. The cool parents don't win. They don't. Now, um, it is important for you to over-communicate with your children about the rules. Because think about it. Uh, Why do I want to obey as a believer? Why do I want to obey as a believer? Because I love God and uh, the command says... Uh, the commands, or God's command, his moral law, allow me to have a relationship with the Lord. They allow me to have a relationship with him. 
But don't mishear what I'm saying because your kids will mishear you. I did not say if you obey, you have a relationship with God. That's not what I said. I said if I love God, I will obey. And they allow, they facilitate a relationship. So when your children misbehave, now, right now, you just think that they just are blowing you off. You told them to pick up their socks and they didn't. And you just know that it is personal with you. They just really, or when your children embarrass you because they get a DUI and you're embarrassed, right? You do not punish them by withholding relationship. Do not punish your kids by withholding relationship. It is not personal. When your child misbehaves, don't get personally offended by them. They're children. Don't get personally offended by them. They should not feel like they must obey in order to have your approval. Don't put those things together. All of you are saying, oh my gosh, that's what happened in my home, right? I mean, that is like what happened in my home. Don't do that. You've got to transform that. Uh, The law, though... So the law is not about having approval. It's about learning how to function in a community where you learn to submit to authority, first parental authority, then later God's authority, which are the same at this age, especially when they're young, but obeying, especially when you don't want to. That's really good, obeying when you don't want to. That's what you're inculcating. You're not, this isn't a power play, okay? It's not a power play. So meaningful character Meaningful character development happens through the law. But don't use the law as a prerequisite for approval or love. Okay, y'all see that? I'm trying to be careful with this because the law is important, but we have misused the law. Okay, but do not become the cool parents. That's not the goal. All right. So y'all see that tension? I'm trying, I'm, y'all see this tension I'm trying to balance as I talk about God's law? Y'all see that? All right. So uh, celebrating God's law. Number two, uh, second priority. Let's keep moving here. It's time together. So look back at Deuteronomy 6. Uh, that verse presumes that you're going to lay down together, you're going to rise up together. It's actually presuming that the family is going to be together a lot. Uh, there's a natural rhythm uh, that you will be together a lot. Listen to me, you guys. Children are not an interruption to the good life. They're not an obstacle to your good life. Oh my gosh, I could almost cry saying that. Because that's how I live like, oh my gosh, for this, what, what will really make me happy, what I really need is space. Well, imagine if God talked to us like that. Never mind. Anyway, okay. But there's so many, um, there's so many things pulling our families apart. I know that Amanda and I, we, you guys all got... Sh- here for different reasons, for work, vocational reasons, you know, uh, military, whatever. A man and I, we chose to be here. Like we, like, like as missionaries, we chose to be here. And that meant that we were not going to be around all of our family and all of the things. And uh, that was like, that's a loss of sorts, right? You know, you're moving away. But, but because we have like no family, it made us as a family, like we are closer than we would have been if we lived in the United States. It's like forced us to be together. And that's been a real gift for us. But listen, if a family is overcommitted, it's not the child's fault. 
it's likely that the idols of the parent are manifest in the schedule of their children. The idols of the parent are manifest in the schedule of the children. School counselors, you guys, uh, you go to any of these school counselors, but they will tell you that the number one cause for adolescent anxiety and depression is sleep deprivation and overscheduling. Not drugs. Not drugs. It's sleep deprivation and overscheduling. Uh, if kids are overscheduled, that's on us. That's on us. We all want quality time with our children, but quality time is a function of quantity time. Just doing life together, downtime, unstructured time. So as a rule, in our family, our children can have one or none activities. One or none activities. At one point, one of our children, Ruthie, she had two activities. She was doing synchronized swimming and dance, and the whole family suffered. So we're like, nope, you can do one or none. Some of our children have chosen to do none. And that's chill. We're cool. Do you, the children with zero activities are unicorns in our culture. Do you know what I mean? Like, what? You don't have your children involved in this thing? I'm serious. You're a unicorn. If your children are like, no, nah, I'm just happy chills, chilling at home. I just play on the playground after school. You know? Like, that's a unicorn. But they're happy children. They're happy children. Um... When kids have downtime, when they have downtime, they have bigger imaginations. And um, they also have margin for others. On most days in my home, singles, and a lot that I would see more than Trinity Church is filled with like young professionals, so a lot of singles, uh, a, lot of, a lot of singles or couples with no kids, and a lot that I would see way more than Trinity. But on most days, singles can come um, to our home pick up one of our children and just do something fun with them because they're available. Our children are available for other people to invest in them. Um, and let me just say this as an aside. When I was in seminary, I interviewed for a class. I interviewed a set of parents in uh, the church that we went to in St. Louis who had four adult children. And all four of these children were like really passionate with the Lord. Like one of them married a pastor, one was a missionary, and two were like really successful business people who were like involved in their churches. It was really great, high-functioning adults. They're all, they're all walking with the Lord. So I, I, I was like, go to this couple. We have four children, you know, they're babies. I'm looking at their four adult children. I don't know how to get from where I am to where they are. And I was like, well, what's the trick? What's the trick? And the thing that they said a lot of things, but the thing that was most notable in their hearts was that they could identify a time in each of their children where a young adult who was not them, not the parents, took interest in their kids and loved them and preached the same gospel that their parents preached, but they were not our age, but a little bit ahead of them. They, so they looked, looked up to that young adult, that single, right? And that, that relationship in them made Jesus plausible, and they saw switches in their children's heart. Isn't that fascinating? So singles and non-professional play a really unique role in, in, in collaboration with parents to, like, love. And so it's interesting because I, um, uh, like, Natalia, how many times, Natalia, have you come to our house or just picked up one of our kids, gone out to eat, take them to the movies, just, like, just, like, whatever, just loving them. And our kids, like, are really interesting, like, and I have tried to do this with other people's kids, too. I was like, hey, can I grab your kid and let them play with us? 
Now, I don't even have an agenda for them at my house. It's literally, I just know that if their kid can come play with us and we love Jesus in the same way that their parents love Jesus, they'll be like, oh, more people than just my parents love Jesus. I don't even have an activity set at my house. We just play together, eat a fun meal, probably eat too much ice cream and like, you know, whatever. We can break all the rules because we're not their parents, you know. Uh, probably give them too much sugar or whatever. But Jesus is possibilitized, right? So we try to like take other people's children to just hang out with us too. And we just do that, that mutual. They can all, they can all um, do that. But our kids actually have margin for it. How many kids are like, no, I'm sorry. Like, I talk to the kids and they're like, no, I'm sorry. We've got activities here, 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 here. They're full. Like, there's no margin in that family's life for this, for that. that that's disappointing because that's such an important formative heart. Y'all see that? So you might really want to think through that schedule. So, um, so some of our kids have one activity and some have zero. Uh, there you are. How do you decide which activities you will allow your kids to have, all right? So um, I really appreciate Jen Wilkinson. Does anyone know that name, Jen Wilkinson, a Gospel Coalition girl? Okay. She's, she's, she, I, I stole these from her. These were so good. Um, the, question, the first question is, does, does the activity sabotage, is it so demanding that it sabotages life skill training? Because if your kid is so busy that he or she can't, meaningfully participate in the chores of the family, then you're doing too much. So, because listen, when your kid is 30 years old, it's going to be less important that they can skillfully hit a 30-yard soccer ball into a corner of a goalpost, but they will need to know how to wash clothes. Because washing clothes is a real life skill, but kicking, scoring goals in soccer is not. I'm just, I mean, I mean if your kid's going to be an Olympian, like, you'll figure that out pretty quickly. You do not need to, like, get nuts and ruin the whole family's life to follow this one child, their Olympic dream. You know what I mean? Like, if your kid's going to be, a, like, the next messy, you'll figure that out pretty soon. Dude, I'm serious about this. Like, we're so, like, nuts about it. Um, so, um, so... Life skills, does it sabotage life skill training? Because those are real things that, like, I need my kids to learn how to wash a car and work hard and experience projects that take a long time, you know? Like, mowing my yard when I was young took a lot of time and edging it and whatever. But I I learned how to, like, stick with things, hard things over time. And that was a skill I'd learned, right? Um, Our kids don't know how to do anything longer than 15 minutes in the sun. I'm tired. Well, that's on us. That's on us. It's not their fault. It's on us. All right. Um, do these activities, here's the next one. Do these activities require you to miss worship? Okay, I won't be careful with this one because y'all are going to be like, oh, he's just the pastor. He's so legalistic. Listen to me. Um, it should alert you if the activities that you have chosen for your children require for them to miss church. Um, let me show you how we navigate this in our home. Uh, because in our culture... Sunday is the new Saturday. No one gives a flip that you want to worship the Lord. That's, it's, it's not like in the 80s where even if you're like a, a completely secular, like still you kind of held off on Sunday mornings. That was just like a nice thing to do. No one cares anymore. Club soccer doesn't care, right? Um, my son, Micah, is on a swim team here. That's his one activity. He's on a swim team. He's a good swimmer. 
He is, I, I was a Division I water polo player. I, I, uh, my son, at his age, is a better swimmer than I was at his age. He's a good swimmer. He's gifted. He's got the body for it. He's skinny like, from his mom's side, whatever. He's got, he's got this great whatever. He's a really good swimmer. Almost every other weekend, there are swim meets on Saturday and Sunday. Every, every other weekend. Here are two things that I did. The first thing I did is I prepped Micah. I said, Micah, buddy, Garcia's remember the Sabbath, the Lord's day, and we keep it holy. Uh, we're the kind of family that when we go on vacation, we find a local church and worship there. Like, we just like, what's the local church? We worship on Sunday. That's what the Garcias do. When we lived in Costa Rica, we didn't know any Spanish. We didn't understand. We went to church every Sunday with four children and just sat in a service we didn't even understand. We, we are like, that is the rhythm we do in our home. Now, uh, I said, Micah, this is going to be really uncomfortable, um, but we're not going to choose swimming over the Lord. And there's going to be a time where they need you on a relay. They need you on a relay, and we're going to say no. Um, and this is a very small sacrifice to the Lord. Micah sticks out. He sticks out. He's an alien child. Now, um, this is what I want you to hear. If your kids can't make small sacrifices now, how are they going to make big ones when there's real peer pressure? Missing a, sun, a Saturday or Sunday swim meet for a 14-year-old is nothing, right, y'all? I mean, we're adults. Like, come on. That's nothing. It's, it feels like a lot to them. But if they can't do it now, how are they going to do it when, it when the stakes are high? I mean, what happens when their employer demands that everyone wears a pro-LGBTQ uh, pin on their lapel and, and, and they have to be a conscientious objector, right? Like, and, and you're really uncomfortable. Not because they're a jerk, but just like, hey, I'm a Christian. You know, like, skip, like... We live in a culture that used to be pluralistic, but it's not pluralistic anymore. You have to get in line or you will be marginalized. And Christians, where we used to be the majority culture, are not the majority culture. We're the minority culture. We are getting squeezed out. And you will, look down, you will be looked down upon for being a Christian. I'm not talking about being a fundamentalist grumpy person with sandwich boards on the corner. I'm I'm talking about a generally cheerful, nice guy who's just a Christian, not judging anyone, right? You're going to live, our children are living in a world that's hostile to them, and they're going to have to, can they be courageous on that day? Those are higher stakes than missing Sunday. But this is how we inculcate identity now, right? The second second thing I, I do is then I talk to the coach, at the outset. I'm not rude. I'm really cheerful. We are really good team parents. Like, we bring drinks for everyone. Like, we're super cheerful. We cheer on everyone's kids. They actually like us. They totally know we're Christians. We're, like, nice. And we're like, hey, come have barbecue at our house. We're not, we're not selling Amway. We're not doing, you know what I mean? Like, we're not selling vitamins. We're super cheerful. And, like, not, like, weird about any of this stuff. Like, we're literally, we're, we're good team parents. We're supportive. We give other kids rides when they need it. We bring food for everyone. We're, che- we're cheerful, good parents. People like us, even though we're Christians. Um, 
But everyone knows that our priority, like the Garcias, you're just not going to see us on Sunday morning. You're just not, you know? And, and that we're not going to make any exceptions, even if it's the state meet. Even if it's the state meet. And I have found that cheerful Christians who live out their convictions become really interesting to the non-believing world. People don't actually hate us. I call this like the Chick-fil-A scenario, a phenomena. Like people are like, I don't even know what what I believe about Jesus, but people are so nice at Chick-fil-A and they're closed on Sundays, you know? Like, and then like their their sales are through the roof, right? Because it's just generally cheerful. And I'm so, I think people are interested by people who live out their convictions. I'm not talking about being a jerk in the name of Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying, like, just live out your convictions and let your children do that. If our children see church participation as something that accommodates their sports team instead of the sports team accommodating the church, then we are sending a crystal clear message to our children. More is caught than taught. No matter what you say, you can say, Christ is first in our lives. And our children will say, Christ is first in our lives. Until he's not, (laughs) unless he isn't. You know what I mean? Y'all see that? Our children need to learn learn now how to let Christ interrupt their lives. And these are like underhand pitches, Sunday morning, not being on the soccer game. These are underhand pitches. This is super easy right now. The stakes are only going to get higher. Um, All right, this next one, this is a bonus one because I didn't uh, include this one in the notes. But can we afford it? In the activity, can we afford it? It is not accurate to say we spare no expense to expose our children to every option and to give them every experience possible. That is not true. That is just not true. Your children don't need all the experiences to live a full life. They don't have to see Europe to be, to be fully realized adults. Um, how you spend money communicates what you love. Do you spend more money on how well your child throws a ball? Or the shoes he wears? Or do you spend more money in how well your, um, in their character development? Like, which one? And if you say, well, it's just that, oh, we don't really have money for it, but my children love it. My child loves it. Listen, your child loves Skittles and Smash Brothers. Like, whatever. You're the parent. You know what I mean? You're the parent. You set the family priorities and practices. You, not your children and what they love. Okay? Y'all see that? Okay. The goal of your family must be different than other families. We are aliens. Every activity has a shared cost to the family. And when you rise and when you lay down. Okay? Alien families talk different. Are y'all following me? All right. uh, Got it? Okay. Alien families talk differently. So... Uh, We try to avoid sarcasm and verbal domination. And oh my gosh, embarrassingly, this is my weakness. Like this is more embarrassing to me than talking about porn use. Explosive anger and verbal domination is more embarrassing than porn. It is so embarrassing to admit to you that I have screamed at my children in a way that if you listened in on it, you would be like, whoa, something is not right. I, this is, I am preaching this to myself, all right? It's embarrassing for me. I want to go there to that dark place of my heart, all right? 
Um, I can fool you guys, but like the Joneses have been in my house this last week and they're like, what kind of broken, messed up parents are there? They haven't seen like the 6,000 private conversations I've had in the room talking to Mia saying, I shamed you. That is so bad. I'm so sorry. I can't believe I shamed you. I'm so sorry. You know, like, oh, like how many times? But here's what I want you to know. If you don't want your child to scream at you when they're 13 and 14, don't scream at them because they're just, like one time I walked in on Micah and he literally is using my exact tone and words that I use that are wrong and sinful to his sisters. And I'm like, I look at that and I can't even be mad at him. I'm like, he's just doing what his daddy does and it's not okay, right? Um, So words, words. Um, we talk different in tone, but we also talk different in topic. The other thing we do is we pursue all of the big conversations like faith and sex. Faith and sex. Uh, but we do it through a thousand little conversations, not just the talk. And like our parents, like at, probably none of us had the talk about sex and faith with our parents. Best, they threw a book at us. At best, they threw a book at us. Don't do that. Listen, with um, sex and swear words, you have, to be, you have to beat your children to the punch. You um, have to hear, they have to hear about this stuff from you first. Don't be weird about it. You know, your kid from a very young age is going to hear about this stuff. And they think that you don't know anything about it. Um, so you have to make it really safe to talk about things. So you have to show them like it doesn't scare you. Um, and listen, they are listening and they are hearing explicit X-rated stuff at their practices, at their school, at their park. Dare I say it, at church? Like you know, one kid at Tassus learns one thing and brings it and shares it with the rest at church at free time, free play. Um, I mean, God forbid. God forbid, you know, we didn't set up to write the script that way, but I'm just saying that's the world we live in. You've got to beat them to the punch. So talk about these words, things, diffuse these concepts. Um, My kids have asked me the most funny, funny questions. So in Spanish, um, our kids on the playground in our neighborhood, they are rowdy, like, and they say really gross stuff. I mean, they're talking about, I know this is recorded, we might edit this part out, but they're like, what's, like, like, whoa, okay, don't freak out, play cool, you know, like, what? because our kids don't even have categories for that, right, and, or, or then they just start using these words, like, um, in Spanish, like, the word is like, right, and so my kids are, like, they're in Spanish, they're like, hey, uh, at first it started like this, Camarón. A camarón is a shrimp, not. But they didn't hear it correctly. So they think they're cussing, but they're calling each other shrimp. And then the other one's laughing and correcting them with the real word play it cool. Play it cool. This isn't the time to lecture. I'm not here to lecture. I don't want to shame them in this moment because then they'll be like, oh, I can't talk about this stuff with you? Oh, because you probably don't even know this stuff. You don't, you don't know these things, right? Um, so don't lecture. Y'all know the difference between, um, a dialogue, 
a monologue and a soliloquy. So a dialogue is where two people are talking. A monologue is where one is talking and one is listening. And a soliloquy is where one is talking and no one's listening, right? We're mostly doing soliloquies when we talk to our children about this kind of stuff. So don't, don't lecture. These are, not, these are not the moments to enforce discipline, honestly. These sensitive issues, I kind of feel shameful. I, there are a lot of places to enforce the rules. Not in these ones, honestly. Not, not here. This isn't where you're like, make them, because they need to feel really safe coming to you. She's being like, hey, tell me about this thing. What's a, like, that's literally what they're hearing. They don't know. And I'm like, hey, well, instead of lecturing, this is what I say. Well, hey, this is, this is what that is. Why do you suppose, why do you suppose mommy and daddy don't talk to each other like that? Now, this is a question. I'm asking them a question. Why do you suppose we don't talk to each other like that? You know? Well, because, you know, probably wouldn't make them feel good. I was like, yeah, that's it. You know? So what I'm doing is I'm engaging a dialogue, not just being like, well, listen, we're Christians, and we don't talk like that's yucky. Right? Like, do you think Jesus would be pleased with that word coming out of your mouth? You know, like, no. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. Just, just be like, hey, you know, like, what do you think? Like, do, you, what, do you think mommy and daddy should talk like that? You know, like, now we're talking about they're processing and they're taking responsibility for it. You see how that's a different conversation? Dialogue about it. No monologues, especially no soliloquies. Um, all right, so um, alien children worship the Lord regularly, not just on Sunday. So this is the last one, practices um, family devotions. <clears throat> uh this is perhaps the one that probably causes most of you shame. <laughs> You're like, I'm not doing this. Uh, but it is also one of the most important aspects for your children's long-term identity. Now listen, this is how important this is. As you know, we have like a lot of visitors here at Trinity. Um, most families are not looking for a church principally based on theological commitments. They are looking for a children's ministry where they can check their kid in at the door with the hope that their kids will become Christians and learn about the Bible by some youth leader. We experience a lot of anxiety that we can't do this stuff ourselves. But I want you to listen really closely to this. Every single book, and we've got, Jeff, how many have we read on these? I mean, 10 books all say the same thing. Every study says the same thing. That youth in children's ministry, no matter how exciting, smoke machines, actors, has no correlation to your child's long-term walk with Jesus. None. No matter how produced it is and how, how beautiful the children's rooms are. And in some cases, they have shown that highly produced youth in children's ministry have an inverse relationship to children persevering in the faith. And in fact, old, boring, crusty churches where children have to stay in the pews, and you're like, they're probably not even learning anything. This is like a boring preacher. Those churches actually have higher rates of children staying in the faith. What do you do with all of that? What do you do with those statistics? What's going on? Because it's not like the child's necessarily processing everything in a service because it's not like always age appropriate. But every expert is saying the same thing. Furthermore, the rates, um, where those old crusty churches, they assume and equip that the parents are going to be the primary youth and children's pastor. 
And that's how come those children do. And so rates are astronomically promising when fathers, not mothers, fathers have non-anxious, cheerful, and consistent presence in their children's devotional lives. I mean, those statistics are incredible. There's a, and I love you mothers, but for whatever reason, God has given fathers a place of privilege in children. I, I just, you can, we can say that's sexist, but just read the statistics. Just don't ignore it. It's just where it is. Um, that's how come with single mothers, right? We, they get a place of privilege in our, in our churches. We're like, oh, we need to help supplement them. All right, that's why we love single mothers so much, because it's hard, right? Um, youth and children's ministry, just historically speaking, is a 20th century phenomenon. It's actually very new. There was no youth or children's ministry prior to the 20th century. Like all the old churches, if you went to Spurgeon's church, there's no like youth ministry or children's ministry. It's just church. You just sit, you know, and they did it for like hours. It was crazy. Um, but here's the thing. Parents still prefer to outsource their children's spiritual formation, even though all the evidence says otherwise. Because they feel anxious about teaching the faith to their children. Most parents, especially fathers, won't lead in devotional life of their children because they feel like an imposter. You're like, well, Ronnie, I don't have a master's of divinity like you. I mean, I'm not, I didn't grow up like really that good at this stuff. You're not an imposter. You're just normal. That's all that means is that you're normal, not an imposter. Um, Family devotions require very little, very little in the way of formal knowledge. So at a different time, I am going to do a longer version on family devotions. But let me just give you a few hints. Remember, this is the frustrating session because I'm not going to do it all. But let me give you a few hints of things that have worked in our family. Uh, First, keep it short and keep it cheerful. If your kid is five years old and you're doing a 30-minute devotional— you are probably frustrated. One to two minutes for every year, every, every age or year. So if your child is six years old, 10 to 12 minutes max, probably six to seven minutes. All right? That's for everyone. That's for the child and the parent. Um, one to two minutes for every year. Uh, the, the point is not length, it's consistent. You just have that touch point every day, five days a week, four to five days a week. That's all it is, all right? Second, open by a song, not a Bible study. No Bible studies. Open with a song. Singing engages little buddies. Try to sing hymns, something that teaches theology, because people learn theology through singing. So if you're singing, this is the air I breathe, this is the air I breathe, that's probably not the best song. You're not going to teach your child a lot. You might get goosebumps every once in a while at church, but your child's not going to learn a lot in the way of theology. All right? I'm not trying to be too cool for school for Hillsong or whatever. I'm just saying, try to learn one hymn. You'll learn theology. And it's beautiful. You know? It's beautiful. It's poetry. You're teaching your children beautiful things and poetry. All right? Try to sing a song. So singing will probably be half your devotional when they're young, if not almost all of it. Third, do, do popcorn prayer. Popcorn prayer. That's, that is like, that's like Martin Luther, 95 thesis on the door. They're happy about it, I promise. That's it. Um, 
Third, do popcorn prayer. Y'all know what popcorn prayer is? I grew up Catholic. Popcorn prayer is the single most uncomfortable thing I can possibly do. It's where, like, you're just quiet and people can just, like, pray. You don't have to pray in a line. You don't have to designate who prays next. Just people just kind of prayer. Pop, pop, pop. So uncomfortable. Kids love it. And they get giggly and they pray. So what we do, and everyone's engaged. It's not daddy speaks or mommy speaks and the kid listens. It's everyone's doing it. So when we sing, everyone's singing. When we do popcorn prayer and we say, hey, guys, we're going to do Thanksgiving popcorn prayer, right? And I'll start. And I give an example of how to pray. And I do this. Lord, I thank you for Pop-Tarts. Right? And that's how long my prayer is. So now all the kids are empowered to participate in prayer. God, thank you for Simba, Luke's dog. You know? Short. It's short. And everyone's praying. Everyone. And then they kind of giggle at each other. And don't be like, hey, we're praying. We're talking to the Lord God. Get serious. No. Don't. Do that. Like, let it be a cheerful... God is a father who loves cheerful prayer. It's okay. Like, everyone just chilled out. Do you know what I mean? Like, gosh, we're like way too intense. Just popcorn prayer. Everyone's participating. These are like... You're you're creating memories and rhythms in your child's heart. Do memory work and be super patient. On our family, this is what we did. The books of the Bible. We did the Lord's Prayer. We did Psalm 1. We did Psalm 23. We did short verses. We did catechism. It took us years. We did Psalm 1. My kids can recite Psalm 1. It took years to do that one thing. It wasn't like it was one whatever. We literally repeated the same thing for like two years. Just to lower the expectations. You're like, well, we're still on Psalm 1 after one month. I'm like, yeah. It takes a while. So be chill. Repeat it, the same thing. Be like, hey. And then when they do it, let's go celebrate. Wow, you finished Psalm 1. That, I don't even know Psalm 1. You know Psalm 1. Let's go get ice cream. You know, it's great. It's kind of fun. So but memory, one little thing. Don't give up. Expect it to take a long time. Um, read the Bible. If all your kids can read the Bible, this is what we do. We say, okay, we're going to read six verses. Not chapters. Sometimes, if they get older, like with Micah, Micah can read a lot. They're good readers. But when they're little, six verses, and everyone reads one verse. So what, what, what that's doing is it's making everyone listen for the other one and follow along because they need to know when their turn is. So you're engaging them. It's not just this lecture discussion thing. Does that make sense? And all of that takes six to ten minutes. And then when they were really young, the, mo- the thing we did is we're like, hey, we're going to pretend like we're at church and we're going to learn how to sit still. Don't expect that you- your children are going to know how to sit still at church if you're not like, hey, we're going to practice. Hey, everyone, let's do church practice. This is great. And we had to do that because we had four, right? And it was all intense. Remember when they were like five, three, three, and three? We're like, okay, everyone, let's sit down. Let's stand up. Let's sit down. Let's stand up. Let's sit down. All right, hold it. Hold it. Hold it. You did it. Let's see if we can do that on Sunday. You know? You're like, we're training them. Rehearsing it. It just takes time. Be patient. Like, they're not going to just, like, come to church and know how to do this stuff. They're not. They have to learn at home. And then we do this thing where we, I say, bring it in, bring it in. And literally, I know this sounds cheesy, but my kids will tell you. We bring it in. And I go, one, two, three. And we all say, Team Garcia. And then I say, peace of Christ be with you. And they say, also with you. 
And that's how we finish it every time. And they love it. They're like, come on, bring it in, bring it in. Team Garcia. Like, that's what we do every devotional. Team, I'm not a 14-year-old and three, you know, 12-year-olds. Team Garcia, every, like, every day. Team Garcia, peace of Christ be with you and also with you. It's just his rhythm. Short rhythms. And listen, they're going to learn a lot of theology through lots of different ways over time. But all of these little bitty crumbs every day turn into this delicious banquet over 20 years. And they just have this positive memory of it because it's generally cheerful, generally cheerful, non-anxious. And they just, and then they, they grow up and they're like, yeah, that's just what, that's what the Garcias did. You know, we just kind of laughed about it. Our prayers were kind of dumb, and, but we kind of figured it out and we learned a few things. We learned a few verses and maybe the theology was thick and maybe it wasn't thick. But man, those are like collective memories and identity of a whole life of what they did, you know? And it's like non-anxious, generally cheerful. Okay? Um, All right. It is 1028, and I'm embarrassed because I haven't got to the pitfalls. Um, Can I go 10 more minutes? How are we feeling? I want to be real sensitive, and I won't do all of that I have here. Remember technology talk? Oh my gosh, you guys. Uh, Real quick, in your tables, one minute, what are the most challenging dynamics of parenting in this particular moment? In this particular moment, I want you to just think about what are the most challenging dynamics in parenting. So at your table, just talk about with one another for just a second. All right, what, 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 any, any, any themes that kind of came out at your tables? One or two themes of particular challenges in this particular moment? Uh-huh. Ah, oh, that's good. Resisting pragmatism. Good, thank you. That's, I didn't think about that one. That's excellent. Other, other challenge in this particular moment? I mean, pro, pro, uh-huh.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yes. Yeah. That's a that's a re- unique challenge right now as developmentally. It's interesting because Mi- Micah, right? He's 14, and um, he wonderfully is going through even hormonally, right, where he's uh, becoming independent from his parents, which you you do not want a failure to launch child, but it goes. It, it, it goes through this, this crucible of sorts where he's, like, showing me, asserting his authority towards me. And, like, and I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to crush him into submission because I actually want him to be a leader, right? So I'm, I'm negotiating. I'm not just trying to win like I did when he was three, right? I'm, I, I'm, I'm evolving with him. Yeah, good. Um, well, let me, let me, let me um, speak real quickly. I'm not going to talk about all these all. I'm just going to say one or two comments. Uh, real quick, uh, pitfalls of, a parent, of parenting. One is uh, affluence. We are all affluent. Everyone here, the preacher, we are affluent. Um, alien children will not own what other kids own when they own it. Alien children will not own what other kids own when they own it. I don't care that your neighbor's eight-year-old has a smartphone. I don't even care that you can afford to give your eight-year-old a smartphone. That's not the point. You see what I'm saying? Um, there is a book by a um, sociologist called uh, Madeline Levine. She writes the book, The Price of Privilege. I think that everyone needs to read that book. It's not a Christian book, but The Price of Privilege. It's alarming what affluence does developmentally. Developmentally. Uh, uh, just one example, it's this idea of delayed gratification is such an important skill for your children, and affluence hurts delayed gratification. So just as an example, we're telling our children, we want them to practice delayed gratification with, re- with regards to sex, right? Hey, abstain from sex, there will be deep gratification when you get married. And we're, so we're trying to teach them delayed gratification, right? Yet in every other area of their life, we're saying, if you want it, get it. So if there's no consistency. They have to learn delayed gratification in everything. Why would they just do it just for sex? You know, just for, as an example. That's just one example. Do you all see how that works? And affluence kills the important skill of delayed gratification. It is a gift to work for something and to earn something. That is a real gift developmentally for your children. Okay. Crisis of authority. I'm just doing these really quick. Crisis of authority. You're the parent. Not... What your friends, um, your your children's friends' parents do—they're not the authority. What your government says—you are the the biggest gift in your child's life. You are the biggest gift to them. You know, the Proverbs uh, thirteen says, "Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him." He who spares the rod—the rod is the parent, not just a belt. It's the parent. You are parenting your children. We're not talking about beating your children. We're talking about parenting them. You're the parent, and that's a gift. There are competing notions of authority. Ah, this, I, I have a lot of notes on this. I'm going to move on. Behaviorism. It is easy to reduce parenting to behavioral modification or punitive correction. Listen to me really quickly. A well-behaved child is no immediate indicator in and of itself for a Godward orientation of the heart. Y'all have friends that you're in youth group with who are really good kids who have walked away from the Lord. They were compliant. 
Um, earning approval by good behavior can be devastating long-term. That's behaviorism. I'm going to say that again. Earning approval by good behavior can be devastating long-term. You're sending all the wrong messages. Uh, most of us were parented like that. <laughs> and we're in counseling because of it. Right? Behaviorism is really just parent-centered, not God-centered. I need my life to be easier. Obey me. Who cares about your heart? Just obey me. Make my life easier. It's parent-centered, not God-centered. What Proverbs 19 says, what is desired in a man is steadfast love. Isn't that good? What is desired in a man, your child, is steadfast love. So parents, you've got to train yourself in identifying heart motivations. So shepherd the heart, not just the hands. Shepherd the heart. Help them to see their behaviors in terms of goals and um, uh, wants and desires and motivations, okay? So understand themselves, God, like, that when you parent, you're going to grow in sophistication as I get older. But like um, when Micah would throw a temper tantrum, we had this emotions wheel, and we'd be like, it's not that you're angry, it's that you're frustrated, right? And so you're giving them language to understand, why are you frustrated? Because I'm sad that I don't get this thing. Yeah, well, we're sad. That's worth being sad about. You see how that's like, it's, it's helping our children go deeper? That's not just, um, you were bad, you threw a temper tantrum, and I don't want you to throw a temper tantrum because your temper tantrum is ruining my day. Put your nose in the corner. Does that, does that make sense? Like, you have to, like, link all of these things. Otherwise, it's just punitive, and you're never working towards shepherding a heart. All right. You might break them. You might make them painfully compliant but there's no indicator of whether or not they love the Lord, okay? All right, premature uh, technology. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna just do a whole different thing on technology. But let me, uh, I I, I read uh, from the sociologist from San Diego State. Her name is Jean Twenge, and she's done extensive research. She wrote an article that was published in The Atlantic, and this is what it, she is a secular she is a secular sociologist. She's not a fundamentalist with a Christian with a chip on her shoulder, okay? Is, I want you to hear what she's, the conclusions she's, she's coming to, her research. She read an article that's called, just these article titles. The article is called, um, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? All right? Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? And um, so the generation... From 19, uh, the millennials, like Natalia over there, <laughs> millennials are, are born from age 1982 to 1994. Does that make sense? Kids born in 1995 and on have never known a day without commercialized internet. They don't remember, they don't have memories pre-internet, like us. They don't have memories of that world. Millennials do. But so they're calling them post-millennials? Or they're calling them iGeners. That's, that's the nomenclature, okay? Um, so she writes a book based on that article called iGen. And now listen to this title. Why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. And what this means for the rest of us. That's a title. But oh my gosh. And, and her studies are showing incredible weird socialization of, um, of our children, weird things. Um, things that characterize this is that um, this generation, they're, I, uh, they're smartphone natives. They understand smartphone like my children teach me about my phone. Um, 
the average age of having a smartphone is 10 years old. That's the average age. They spend less time working jobs, less time serving, less time volunteering, less time doing homework, and they're virtually always online. Always online. Uh, This generation is more secular than any generation before. One in four don't practice any spirituality at their home. Um, This generation is woke. You know what that means? They're woke. So they're more pessimistic, more sensitive to social tensions, and more likely to protect anyone that they perceive as vulnerable. They're sensitive to what they perceive as not safe. They are homebodies who rally from home through social media. They rally from home. This generation is depressed. iGeners, post-millennials, not millennials, post-millennials. From 2012 to 2015, over the course of three years, three years, 2012, depression rose in boys by 21% and 50% for girls. Suicide rate is up 46% from between the years of 2015 and 2018. And some of them are broadcasting it on Facebook. Um, here's uh, iGeners, they appear confident online, but they, and they are never offline. And social media is what brokers their friendships. It, it, social media is a broker for a relationship. Here's the problem. Surround yourself with enough technology, technology and machines. Eventually, you will need no one else. And once technology has made everyone unnecessary to you, at some point, you wake up and realize that you have become unnecessary to everyone else. Y'all see that? And, and it is cosmic loneliness that sits in and depression. Okay, I have literally pages, but it is just that it's a painkiller for loneliness. So... I'll, another day, I'll talk about what it means to delay smartphones and to delay social media and how to make entertainment a communal experience instead of an individual experience where everyone's on their own thing. Um, when entertainment is used as medication instead of lightheartedness. Entertainment as medication instead of lightheartedness. Because um, that's how addiction starts. Um, all right, I have, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop right here because it's irresponsible. Let me finish with this. Um, I hope this primer leaves you with more questions and answers. Uh, we got a lot of work to do. I'm just setting the stage for lo- larger conversations. Um, I'm pulling for you. Uh, you have not blown it. You have not set into motion all the wrong patterns that are undoable. You haven't. You can change. Um, if you were raised where all the wrong decisions were made, um, you don't have to be a slave to that. And if you've made tons of bad decisions, now you're, we can change because the gospel's true. The gospel's true, everyone. Um, every single meaningful relationship in your life is not characterized by perfection. None of them are. They're characterized by vulnerability and repentance. If you have a good marriage, it's because there's vulnerability and repentance. If you have a good friendship, it's because there's vulnerability and repentance. If you have a good parental relationship, it's because there's vulnerability and repentance, not perfection. So that, over time, will really be a vol- uh, uh, an instrument to making Jesus beautiful and compelling in the lives of our children. That's Parenting 101. Okay, I am going to pray for us so that everyone feels good to get up and leave, but I'll also stick around if we want to just small talk and ask questions, okay? Uh, and just remember the book table. Take a look at those books. There's some good ones over there. 
uh, their resources for you or take pictures of titles or whatever. Remember, $10 for all the books. Some cost more, some cost less. We're not trying to make any money on it. We just want to make resources available to you guys. Father, thank you for um, time together. Uh, watch over us, I pray. Uh, draw us closer. Remind us that children and other people's children are not an interruption to the good life. Uh, what a gift we have. Help us to be stewards of these precious souls, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys.